you all have come today and uh, we're willing to uh, walk through the heat of Taiwan to, to be here. It is, is really, Nathan has brought the weather with him as adi in addition to his PowerPoint. And um, I think you'll like the PowerPoint and we're glad you survived the heat. Um, and we're really looking forward to a very vigorous conversation uh, today. My name's Scott Kennedy. I'm the trustee chair in Chinese Business and Economics. And we're delighted to, to have this presentation and discussion about Taiwan's upcoming elections. Uh, our speaker today uh, is Nathan Bato, who is an associate research fellow at the Institute of Political Science at the Academia Sinica in Taipei. He also holds a joint appointment at Election Studies Center at National Zhengzhou University. I first met Nathan uh, in 2005 when I was a visiting scholar at UC San Diego, uh, which is where he got his PhD from. And anybody who knows anything about political science and elections knows that UC San Diego's political science program is one of the best places on the planet uh, to study uh, elections. Uh, and so uh, he is, uh, his research uh, focuses on comparative political institutions. Uh, he has looked at electoral gender quotas, malapportionment, political dynasties, uh, the personal vote, local factions, candidate selection mechanisms, and the relationship between constitutional systems and electoral systems. His current project, which I am really excited to see because it will have great video that comes along with it, is on parliamentary brawls. Uh, and as I understand it, uh, he views this as one of the most democratic methods of, or, or demonstrations of democracy that you can find. I don't know if this is a democratic tool, but and he'll, he'll, he's now going to explain that because I've just butchered what it means. Um, uh, he first traveled to Taiwan in 1989. During the 1990s, he was a research assistant in the Electoral Studies Center, received his MA from National Zhengzhou University in Political Science, and he returned to Taiwan in 2009. Um, if you have a chance, in addition to looking for his academic writings, please go look at his blog on Taiwanese elections called Frozen Garlic. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Nathan's going to give a presentation uh, of about 30 minutes or so about politics and uh, polling in Taiwan and where things are headed. Uh, we'll then be, uh, we'll take this podium away, we'll then be joined on stage uh, by Susan Lawrence, who I'll introduce then, who will offer initial commentary, and then we'll open up uh, the floor to questions and discussion. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Nathan Bato. Well, I'm not gonna talk about parliamentary brawls. You'll just have to invite me back. Uh, thank you to CSIS for having me out here. Uh, we have a lot to go through, so I'm going to jump right into it and try to go quickly. Uh, so let's see if I can manage that. There I am. All right. So the background, uh, I'm sure you all know this, but the, the dominant issue in Taiwan has to do with China and uh, how Taiwan relates to China. Uh, I call this the China cleavage, uh, and, and it has four big facets. Uh, has to do with your, your personal background, uh, 
your national identity, your subjective national identity of whether you're Taiwanese or, or Chinese or both, uh, with uh, Taiwan's future status, whether Taiwan will become independent or unify with China, and then how to manage day-to-day -day relations with, the, with China. Um, and those are not quite the same thing, but they're highly intertwined. And uh, the, how you answer those questions uh, fundamentally shapes most of your political orientations in Taiwan, and it organizes the, the party system. This isn't the only thing that matters in Taiwan. It's, it's an exaggeration to say that every political question comes down to this China cleavage, but it is the, most, the, the single most important thing and it shapes all your political attitudes. Of those four facets, I think that, uh, the pointer? Is that the pointer? I think that the second one is probably the most important, your, your subjective national identity. And if you've ever been to Taiwan, you've probably seen this chart from the Election Studies Center of trends since the early 1990s uh, of your national identity. What I like to do is uh, combine, oops, is combine these, these two, uh, the, the people who say both, so that's the, the, the purple line here, and the people who say they're Chinese. And I like to combine them and, and, and see, uh, whoops, all right, I messed it up. Uh, how do I get out of this? There we go. I like to combine those two lines and just get two straight lines. Uh, so the green line here is people, here, let, me, let me try this hand. The green line here is people who have uh, some sort of Chinese identity and the pink line is people who have an exclusive Taiwanese identity. And um, I think that's really the tectonic plates of Taiwan politics. And so you can see that before about 2008, uh, the KMT, having some sort of Chinese identity would have been favored to win most elections. And since then, it's changed to about neutral. And nowadays, probably the DPP should win. The, the overall structure of politics probably favors the DPP. All right, let's go through here. I keep pushing the wrong button, and that's not great. Okay, come on. How do I get out of this? There we go. So in the 2018 elections, uh, the, the KMT had a smashing victory. So these are local elections. And as you probably all know, uh, that was unusual. So if we look back at past elections in uh, previous years, we, if these are the mayoral and, and presidential elections, the KMT's had a wrong one. Uh, the KMT's had a fairly consistent, that's not the right slide either. The KMT's, <laughs> I don't know why this is so hard. The KMT's had a fairly consistent uh, lead in elections. They've had a fairly consistent advantage, except for the 2014 and 2016 elections where the DPP did really well. And then you see in the, the 2018 elections, the DPP just cratered. Uh, and so if we look at what happened, there were a bunch of different things. So there was high levels of dissatisfaction with the Thai government in office. Uh, we can look here at, this is satisfaction with Thai's performance in office according to one pollster that I, I kind of like. Uh, so she started out here with her honeymoon period and that quickly, these are satisfied people, that quickly dissipated and she's been down in the 20s for most of her presidency. This is the month of the election where she had 20% satisfaction, 67% dissatisfaction. So she was 40, uh, almost 50% underwater. 
by contrast, you know, Donald Trump is about 10 to 15 percent underwater now. She was really underwater when the election hit. Uh, so what happened? Well, people were talking about uh, the China policy and foreign affairs, Taiwan losing some diplomatic ties, uh, bad relations with China. Uh, she didn't, those, so she's attacked from one side. She's also attacked from the other side for refusing to enthusiastically support a referendum uh, calling for use of the name Taiwan in the Olympics. Uh, there was bad economic growth. Not bad, but not great. Nobody's happy about economic growth in Taiwan. Uh, there were some controversial reforms, pensions, labor laws, the marriage equality. That, that She tended to take a moderate position, for example, in pensions. And even though polls said that her position was the most popular of any alternative, it's the moderate one. So the people who wanted a more extreme policy on this side and a more extreme policy on that side were all unhappy. And instead of her standing up and saying, we did this very difficult thing, and we passed the most popular package, and gosh, I'm a good politician, she apologized and said, I'm, I know it's not popular, and I'm asking everybody to, to forgive us for, or to, to uh, let it slide that we're not doing the perfect thing. Uh, and then finally, we talked a lot about air quality. But I want you to notice that there were only minor changes here in these fundamental China cleavages. And what's happened this year is probably that these, these fundamental China cleavage uh, things have reasserted themselves uh, over this past year. And you can see her approval rating over this past year has just gone up fantastically. Every month seems to have good polling data for her. Uh, and so she's gone from being in this polling set from being 50 points underwater to being just five points underwater. And you get surveys now every now and then that show her actually with more satisfaction than dissatisfaction. Uh, so she's made this fantastic recovery over the past year. Um, so what's happened? Well, we have, we have a discourse about her uh, having good results. Some of the investments that she's made over the past three years are bearing fruit. Uh, so. She can talk about the energy policy. We're not, we're not right on the verge of an energy blackout. Every day it's hot in the summer uh, because new energies come online as they've invested in things like wind energy. Um, she can talk about business investments coming back from China and investing in Taiwan. And every day seems to have a new story about a company that wants to, uh, this promising investment locally. Uh, the, the tax revenues, uh, have been so good that she was able to uh, give a small tax cut. So when we filed our personal tax income in our, our tax taxes in May, uh, we got a little tax back. Uh, so you know she's she's got these these things that she can talk about. Uh, she can talk about uh, successes in military policy. Uh, her best photo ops all involve her in military fatigues, standing next to a soldier at an airplane. And if you followed Taiwan politics, the idea that a DPP politician loves photo ops with the military is slightly disorienting. But it's true. Her best photo ops all come from military things. Uh, she's been talking a lot about uh, doing domestic production of military hardware. And this year, they increased the military budget by, oh, I think, 8% by a fairly large amount. Uh, she won the fight on marriage equality in May. 
So marriage equality is not popular, but it is popular with young people. And you see young people's uh, support for her going up, skyrocketing in, in May and June. Uh, the other thing that winning that fight did was it reestablished her authority within the party. Uh, at the beginning of the year, she looked like a lame duck who was on her way out. This, this fight, winning this fight, telling the DPP to step in line and follow her, uh, reasserted her authority as the unquestioned leader of the, of the party. So I think that was important for political reasons as well as policy reasons for her. Uh, she's had a series of good news with American relations. So we have uh, her coming to the United States and receiving very, very good diplomatic uh, treatment. Uh, Taiwanese always pay attention to the level of of diplomatic courtesy you get. And so the fact that she was allowed to stay longer than any previous president was a big deal. Uh, Paul Ryan led a, a delegation to Taipei, a high profile delegation for the 40th anniversary of the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, there was a face-to-face -face meeting in the White House between David Lee and John Bolton, which is very, very high, something that is, not, uh, has, is unprecedented. Uh, they renamed an office to call it the Taiwan Council for U.S. Affairs, changing it from some alphabet soup thing. Uh, we had two major arms sales, and we've had several na Navy ships sail through the Taiwan Straits. So she's had a lot of uh, good news coming out of American relations. And when the KMT says, our, China, our relations with China are terrible, and we're losing diplomatic allies, she can respond and say, yes, but the most important relationship the one with the US, is the best now that it's been for 50 years. And she can do that convincingly with the series of good news. And then, of course, there's Hong Kong, uh, which I think has probably reframed the choice. And we're not thinking about air quality, and we're not thinking about uh, energy policy, and we're thinking about more fundamental things like sovereignty and the continued existence of Taiwan and democracy, and is drawing it back to that fundamental, uh, that fundamental, those tectonic plates, to back to the China cleavage issue. Um, that's the DPP side. That's not the, the interesting part of this. So you can see over the past six, six months, this is from uh, my blog. I'm doing an aggregated poll, so kind of a poll of polls. Uh, and you can see the Hangul you started here. This is May. The, the KMT started winning, and he's, he's basically uh, tailed off Consistently, you can ignore these two bumps here. These are post-nomination bounces that were probably temporary and don't matter. Uh, and then Tsai Ing-wen's consistently gone up. From, so they've gone from being probably counting down to the KMT taking power to today probably the DPP more or less online to retain power, although it's not, it's not a certain thing, but she's in a much, much better shape now than she was six months ago. Uh, and there's another poll that says the same thing. Let's go to the KMT. So uh, as you all know, the KMT's fundamental political appeal is that the KMT wants to deal with China, integrate the Taiwanese economy with the Chinese economy, and thereby get rich. Uh, and to do that, you have to be willing to sit down with the Chinese government. Uh, or the Chinese government has to be willing to sit down with you in the same room and negotiate out, negotiate out like uh, investment guarantees and things like that, formal things. So China 
has a veto over the KMT's basic strategy. Now, to get China to agree to do that, you have to say the magic words. And the magic words that, they, that the KMT came up with are the 1992 consensus. So one China, each side with its own interpretation. The 1992 consensus is a, is a contradiction. It is a fundamental contradiction. Because the first half, one China, promises to China that there will be political consequences, that Taiwan will eventually move towards some sort of unification. The second half, each side with its own interpretation, promises to the people of Taiwan, don't worry about that first half. There's an ROC. There's always been an ROC. There's going to continue to be an ROC. No political consequences. You can just get rich. So there is a tension between those two halves. Are there consequences or are there not political consequences? Uh, and China spent the last 10 years nudging the KMT, trying to pull it bit by bit towards having a little bit more political consequences. Uh, so this is becoming harder and harder to sell to the Taiwan electorate as the KMT gets nudged in a more uh, one China direction and in the less each side with its own interpretation direction. Uh, there are other problems with this. China's changing. The China today of Xi Jinping is not the same as the China of Hu Jintao. It's politically a little bit scarier, uh, a little bit more demanding. Uh, it's not growing as fast, so it's not as attractive. Uh, the Ma era experience eroded some of that ambiguity because we actually had concrete experience with it, and we had the Sunflower Movement, which uh, was, in, at least in my interpretation, a, a reaction against those political consequences. Uh, and so the, the KMT seems committed to continuing on, at least through this election cycle, through the, with the 92 consensus as their, their basic appeal. They've, they've played around with some uh, various people at various times have, have suggested some, uh, some alterations with a more uh, one, one China each side, or both sides with the same interpretation, or talking about a peace agreement. But the, the 92 consensus is still their, their golden ticket in their, in their mind. Uh, so let's talk about Hanguoyu. And I want to talk about this in three acts. So act one, Hanguoyu, the completely unremarkable, not, ser not terribly successful politician. Uh, Han grew up in a, he's a mainlander. He grew up in a military village. He's not an elite. He grew up in one of the kind of the ordinary mainland uh, military villages. Uh, so Mainjo, for example, is a very polished person, grew up as an elite. Uh, Han Guoyu grew up a kind, of, was kind of a normal person. Uh, they, do, they don't really get along culturally. Uh, Han Guoyu's wife is very interesting. She's from a political family in central Taiwan. Her father, and her brother, and now she, uh, have held a seat in the Yunlin County Assembly for, since 1986. Uh, and if you know anything about Taiwan, then the word Yunlin should mean to you local factions, dirty money politics, black and gold politics. And they are heavily embedded in that context. Uh, they are, they, 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 they know all those people. So Han Guoyu, for a few decades now, has learned how to play that game, has learned how to speak that vernacular, how to slap people on the back and get along with those kind of politicians in a way that you wouldn't normally expect someone with his background 
to be able to do. Um, so his own political career, he was a three-term legislator. He came out of the KMT's Huang uh, Fuxing, the military branch, uh, and was a kind of a stereotypical uh, ideological mainlander military system legislator, except that he wasn't very high profile. Uh, he served for three terms, and I couldn't tell you much about what he did. Uh, in retrospect, we learned that he punched Chen Shui-bian once. But a lot of people punched Chen Shui-bian back then. It wasn't a particularly uh, high-profile thing. Uh, after his three terms, he went to Beijing and studied at, at Beidaf in a PhD program. Didn't graduate. Uh, doesn't put this on his CV, but it's become known. Uh, then he came back to Taiwan and tried to resume his political career. Didn't get nominated for the legislature. Tried to run for KMT party chair. Didn't do very well. Wanted to run for Taipei city mayor. They said, no, we have real people to run for Taipei city mayor. Why don't you go to the wasteland of Kaohsiung and try your luck there? We're up to 15 months ago. We're up to like June of last year. And Han Guoyi is still a nobody with with uh, not much of a political career and not very interesting. And then suddenly, act two, Han Guoyu takes off. Something happened in about August of last year, and his campaign went from being hopeless to somehow being inevitable in, in an extremely hostile environment traditionally to the KMT. And I don't know what happened. I, this still doesn't make much sense to me, but his campaign took off. Uh, he got all kinds of TV coverage, from, uh, especially from the pro-blue media and from the, the Want Want group. So uh, CTI de devoted about 70% of its airtime to him. Not, not political news coverage, all airtime. 70% was in some way a story about Han Guoyu. Uh, the other blue media was a little bit more reasonable, so TVBS only devoted about 25 to 30% of its airtime to this one candidate in one race while there was a whole general election going on. Uh, there was mysterious internet strength. A lot of things that we've learned now were coming out of China. Uh, I tend to think that's over, that's not that important. But then I don't know why he took off. Uh, but, but my political science, the voting behavior person in me says, uh, fake news can't really turn a deep green population into a deep blue population. That's overstating the influence of any kind of source of information. Uh, his message, he talked a lot about regional inequality, how the South was ignored, and how uh, all the young people went north to Taipei. Uh, he talked about, uh, he talked about uh, growing the economy, wanted to sell vegetables. So the, the goods go out and the people will come in. Uh, he said he didn't want to talk about politics at all. He only wanted to talk about economics. But then when he did talk about economics, his message was about opening it up to, to, the, to the China market, which is a fairly conventional KMT message. Uh, so he won this election. Miracle. And then immediately there were calls for him to run for president. And so he said, well, I just got elected. I'm not running, of course. Uh, but then people demanded it. Uh, there were political machinations at the KMT central uh, party branch. And eventually he got dragged in, either willingly or, you know, twist my arm. No, no, no make me run. Uh, but eventually he agreed to run. Uh, 
he had a series of massive rallies uh, in which his hardcore supporters all turned out in mass. And he was by far the most, uh, most popular candidate among KMT supporters. Uh, and so when they held the polling primary, those people turned out in force. They answered, the, or didn't turn out, they stayed at home to answer their phones in force. Uh, and he won the, the KMT primary in a landslide. Uh, his supporters are orthodox KMT loyalists. So the people who believe in the, the great ideals of the KMT. Uh, but then he also has a couple of other sources of support. One is these local factions who come, who he met through his wife's family in a couple of decades of backslapping. Uh, they, they've gotten onto his, uh, his campaign and they are, they are staunchly in, in support of him. Uh, and then he was also supported last year by people, by a lot, of, there's a lot of uh, dissatisfaction in Taiwan. So you have a, a large group of anti-establishment youth, especially youth, who were disillusioned with the two big parties. And here's Han Guoyu, who Mainjo doesn't really get along with very well. Uh, he seems like a, an unconventional politician. And uh, they, he got a lot of this anti-establishment vote last year. Now this year, that's all gone. Uh, this year, all those people have, have watched him be mayor. We're, we're leaking into act three here now. Uh, he's always been opposed by uh, the KMT intellectuals. So the, the people like, like Ma Ying-jeou, uh, they call them zhishilan, the, the blue intellectuals, which is a term that I'd never heard before this year. Uh, so uh, those people don't like him, but the other people do inside the KMT. So now we come into act three, which is, uh, the, we won't call it the fall yet, he hasn't fallen, but the slide, the, the downturn, the slump. Um, so as, as a mayor, he hasn't been an outstanding mayor. He's been uh, worrying about all kinds of different things that have, that have happened, or I guess he's been ignoring all the different things that have happened. So there was an outbreak of dengue fever and he was off campaigning. Uh, there was a, a a heavy rainstorm, and instead of overseeing the flood relief, he was off holding a rally. Uh, there are rumors that he sleeps late, doesn't enter the office until noon every day, which they say, how are you gonna be president if you don't get up until noon? Uh, so there are these stories, uh, you know, other people have accused him of, of drinking and gambling and womanizing, and he said, hey, I don't, I don't drink and gamble anymore. So he's, he hasn't helped in some of these ways. Uh, in recent days, he's, uh, he's accused the state of uh, spying on him, essentially, which works as a way to rally your base, but among the, the broad neutral voters makes you look like you're a little bit, con a little bit uh, paranoid and out of touch. Uh, anyway, so he's had, he's had some problems. Uh, whoops. Here in, uh, in March, he went to visit uh, Hong Kong and stopped into the Taiwan Affairs Office. Uh, it was an unscheduled visit, and the press made a big deal out of that. And he went in with, you know, it's, it's a closed door meeting. We don't know what they said. But he walked out and said, we, we just talked about selling vegetables. Uh, 
But that was interpreted as a, a big deal, that he was, he was laying his cards on the table, that he was paying uh, his respects to, to the Chinese. Uh, to the Chinese government in Hong Kong, kind of going around the, the, the chief executive. Oh, excuse me. Uh, when the protests started up in Hong Kong, he was initially reluctant to talk about them. So when the press would ask, what do you think about the protests? He'd say, I don't know, I haven't been following. I'm not paying attention. And eventually he made uh, some comments. And when he does make comments, they tend to be very conventional. Um, but uh, his image is being set by the things he doesn't say. It's being set by the, that visit to the Taiwan Affairs Office. And his image is that he is a much more uh, pro-China politician than, is, uh, than the KMT mainstream, maybe. Um, so here's a trust in Hanguo. You trust in his, uh, what he says. And you can see at the end of last year, he had uh, pretty high levels of trust, over 50% trusted him. And here by the summer, he's down to 33, 30% in, in an August poll. Uh, you can see that's, that's falling. He has generally very high negatives. If you look at all the major political figures, uh, his polling negative numbers are higher than everybody else's. Um, here's the same thing, but this is only Kaohsiung residents, and it's only the second half of that. So. The earliest thing is in May here, whereas that one went back to last November. And this is a trust and satisfaction with his performance. And they show the same thing. He's, he's had a big decline in his, in his numbers. Um, let's talk about some of the things he said. So when he went to uh, Shenzhen after that Hong Kong trip, he then went into to China. And he said, the 1992 consensus is the magical needle that stabilizes the sea. Very poetic. Uh, not leaving our standard rhetoric, but he's saying it in a more colorful uh, way. Uh, after he finally made a cons uh, comment on the Hong Kong, he was forced to say something about the Hong Kong protest. And so he said, uh, currently for the Republic of China area, we absolutely cannot accept the one country, two systems arrangement used in Hong Kong and Macau. This is a huge mistake. In standard KMT rhetoric, there is no such thing as the Republic of China area, right? And they made a big deal out of, uh, in, 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 in all the political discourse, of having a KMT person talking about this sensitive thing and making this mistake, uh, diminishing the ROC into an area. You can talk about the Taiwan area and the mainland area, but you can never talk about the ROC area, uh, not, in, not in official KMT discourse. But, uh, so this is seen as something where he said, well, it's just a slip of the tongue. Of course I didn't mean to say that. Uh, everybody else said, well, isn't that convenient, right? So this is one of the things that's shaped his image. Uh, and then finally, a couple of weeks later, he had this massive political rally where he stood up and said, Taiwan can never accept one country, two systems unless it is over my dead body. My dead body in English, the rest of it in Chinese. So he said, over my dead body. And this is typical Hanguyi, right? He doesn't want to say anything, he doesn't want to say anything. 
But when he finally gets time to say something in political rhetoric, he goes overboard and says it really, really strongly. Um, which leads some people to say, oh yeah, of course, he was always that way. And other people to say, I don't believe a word he says. Right? Uh, and then we have this quote, which I think embodies the difficulty of figuring out exactly what he says. So the Liberty Times, he sat down for an exclusive interview with them, and they did a full page thing on him. And they asked him a fairly easy question. If you're elected president, how would you conduct cross-strait relations? Uh, this is my translation. Or actually, no, this is the, in the Taipei Times. They translated it for me. Um, he said, I've reiterated the four points time and time again and very clearly. Defend the Republic of China, reject one country, two systems, love freedom and democracy, stand with peace and prosperity. These points are profound. The roles for the hearts, brains, hands, and feet of 23 million people, uh, Taiwanese need to be clearly defined. The feet are our democracy and freedoms that must stand firm. The hands are for shaking with people from every ethnic group, nation, and class. The hearts are for knowing that the Taiwanese economy is in a hard place and a lot of people are suffering. The brains are for finding every possible chance of growth for Taiwan. Once we know these roles, we will be confident in our freedoms and democracy. Even if we shake hands with North Korea's Kim Jong-un, that does not mean Taiwan is developing atomic bombs. We should be confident in the strength of our feet, which are our freedoms and democracy, and be brave and fearless. Um, let, let, me, let me just reiterate. This, this is very clear. <laughs> what he means there is, and this is a, it's hard to figure out exactly what Han Guoyu is by what he says, because I have no idea what any of that means. Uh, this is, this is the, he's a charismatic guy. Uh, all right, let's, let's move on to the third contender here. Uh, so Terry Guo, who, uh, Guo Taiming, who is either running or not running, he seems about 95% sure to run. Um, he's the chair of Foxconn, he's a billionaire. Uh, he ran in the KMT primary and lost to Han Guoyu. Uh, but let's first talk about Ko Wenzhou, sorry because their votes overlap a lot. Kilwenza was expected to run, and over the last month, he's kind of moved away to where it would be surprising now if he did run. But he's been supporting Guo Taiming, and their votes overlap quite a bit. Uh, the important thing to know about him is that Ko's support is heavily concentrated among young voters and these anti-establishment people, people who are fed up with the blue and the green and the corrupt party politicians as they see it. Who, who actually run the country. Uh, and since he's supporting Guo Taiming, some of that's rubbed off. Not quite, not quite all of it, but a lot of it has rubbed off so that Guo is, is inheriting that coalition to some extent. Um, let's skip that. Um, so Guo Taiming is the boss of Honghai, uh, which is Foxconn. Uh, he's a new politician, right? We don't know much about him. We don't know very much about what he stands for or what he's done. And we know almost nothing about his political past. He hasn't been vetted at all. Uh, Taiwan's been vetted thoroughly. This is her pre third presidential race. Han Guoyu's run a little bit. We know a little bit about his past. But there could well be a scandal that emerges from his past. We don't know anything about, about Terry Guo and his political past. 
Is there a scandal in his past? Who the heck knows? What has he said in China? Who the heck knows? What deals has he made? We don't know. He's, he's a totally, uh, not totally, but very, very unknown quantity. Uh, uh, so he talks a lot about because he's a billionaire, he understands the economy, and he's going to revitalize the economy. Uh, he talks a lot about things like artificial intelligence and free childcare, uh, but doesn't actually talk too much about his policies. Um, he is he is doing pretty well in the polls, so it is a three-way in the three-way race. He's not he's not out of it. He's not doing great, but he's not he's not he's not certainly a viable candidate. Um, when he first came out, one of his first things was to talk about the relationship with the USA, and he positioned himself as a skeptic of the Taiwan relationship with the USA. So this is from back uh, in, in April. Uh, on national defense, we can't rely on the USA. After all, which country that has relied on the USA for defense has ever achieved real security? National defense relies on peace, not other people. The USA is constantly fooling us with old weapons. Instead of buying American weapons, Taiwan should invest in the, in the American economy and acquire advanced technology. That's one of the most anti-American statements I've heard. And he's walked away from this a bit in, in uh, past months, in the intervening months. But, but that staked out a position that was a little bit unusual in Taiwan politics. And then uh, he stormed out of a, a meeting, out of a, an event for the, the Taiwan relationship 40th anniversary uh, event and uh, because they wouldn't answer his question, kind of the, the American officials there lost face. And he did it on purpose to set them up as kind of a populist move. Uh, so this last quote on, on the trade war, Taiwan is becoming a front in the struggle between the two great powers. Favoring any side could lead Taiwan into great danger. Right? So this is, this is also suggesting they should find some sort of neutral position. And as I said, in the last few months, he's walked away from this. He's talked about things like, I lived in the United States for 11 years. Of course, I love the United States. Uh, but, but he hasn't really walked away from any of those positions formally. Uh, on one China, this is an astounding statement. His first statement was about the 92 consensus. And Think about the differences between this statement and the original formulation of the 92 consensus. I will not say 1992 consensus, those words. I will talk about the 1992 consensus, one China, each side with its own interpretation. Under the framework of one Chinese ethnicity, there is one ROC and one PRC. This is what I insist upon. That is not a political one China. Uh, that is not a political one China. That is an ethnic one China, which is very, very far from what China thinks one China means. And in fact, in the second part, he says actually two Chinas. They share sovereignty, which is not one side with each, each with its own interpretation, where they say the ROC has the sovereignty over, over all of China, or the PRC has the sovereignty over all of China. This is a two Chinas that they exist simultaneously. Uh, and so he was criticized for this. And then the next time he talked about it, he didn't repudiate that statement. But the next time he talked about it, 
in the, pre, the, pre, the KMT presidential debate, he said, the most important part of the 1992 consensus is each side with its own interpretation. Without that, there is no consensus. Well, China, uh, China uh, disallowed each side with its own interpretation in its official media. They don't want to hear about that part. Uh, and here Guo is saying that's the only important part. So this, this statement doesn't necessarily jibe with either the KMT position or something that China has said it would accept as a useful negotiating partner. But Guo insists that he's going to be able to revitalize the, the economy by dealing with China. So money isn't colored, not blue or green, right? Uh, technology isn't colored. People care about how to develop the economy. The reason I'm coming out now is that Taiwan's economy is so important. It's been stagnant for 20 years. Uh, and then in this quote, he went on to talk about, he directly said he wants to break through the blue and green and revitalize Taiwan's economy. He also pointed out that because the two parties had rotated power and they governed according to ideology and not according to economic development, the two parties had not concentrated on developing Taiwan, which had created 20 years of stagnation. I will only talk about the economy. I won't talk at all about politics. So in that statement, ideology, which is talking about the relationship with China, leads directly to bad economic development. Uh, Cohen's has argued that, that ideology leads to corruption. Uh, so in this centrist discourse, they want to get rid of that. But then how are you going to deal with Taiwan if you don't have a, if, you don't, if you're not willing to talk about quote unquote ideology? This is something he's going to have to deal with uh, and it's difficult. So to wrap up, let's talk about the basic contours of the election. So the DPP is steady, familiar. Uh, Taiwan's not very inspirational, but uh, she's on track, I, it looks to me like. She's stronger on maintaining sovereignty, weaker when she's talking about domestic politics. Uh, but the underlying framework, the underlying uh, identity framework of Taiwan politics probably favors the DPP right now. Uh, and so her job is to get everybody back to those basic two lines. Um, she's already made a remarkable comeback in this race, going from being a a walking lame duck to being on track for re-election. It's a remarkable transition. Uh, the KMT has a charismatic candidate, uh, but he inspires intense support, intense loyalty, and also pretty intense opposition. Uh, he's got a very high floor, but apparently a pretty low ceiling. It doesn't seem like he's going to be able to open up uh, new uh, groups of people who are going to vote for him. He will try to talk about economics uh, and ignore the, the China problem, but uh, the international context might make that difficult. It's always, in a presidential election, it's always hard to ignore talking about China. Um, he hasn't consolidated the KMT base yet. There are still some KMT sympathizers who aren't sure and may, might be leaning towards Guo uh, or just not voting. Um, and he's very weak among uh, independents and young voters. 
Gua is completely undefined and unvetted. He has lots of money, but he doesn't have any kind of organization or any kind of party support. So in things like getting out to vote or having big networks of people locally to, to make sure that his events are going well or that he's getting his message down to the lowest levels, we don't know how that's going to work. Uh, he has a very unwieldy coalition of people, some blue people, some green people, who are projecting things on him. And as his campaign is defined, uh, it might be hard to hold that coalition together. Uh, he'll want to talk about economics while arguing against ideology, but that will be difficult. And especially if China decides to weigh in and signal that this discourse is acceptable or not acceptable. Uh, and there were, there's a hint in the last couple of days uh, one of his companies got delisted in uh, the, I don't know, if it's not delisted, but the, you can't buy Hong Kong Foxconn shares anymore in, in Shanghai. Uh, and so that may have been a message or it may not. But uh, we're trying to read the tea leaves from what China means, what China thinks about him. And if China sends a signal, a clear signal, then it might uh, affect his appeal. Uh, and then I just want you to remember that three-way races are inherently unstable. We will be talking about strategic voting, or as Taiwanese say, dump and save. So abandoning this candidate and voting for your second favorite candidate. We'll be talking about that a lot over the next four months. All right, I'm over time. I've got to stop. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Nathan. Come on, Eric. Oh, come on. Up here. Um, why don't you sit in the middle, and then uh, and have Susan over there, and then you want to come get the yeah, uh, yeah on that side, and then he'll take the uh, podium away. It's terrific, Nathan. That was that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, and I th I think now hopefully you you've just persuaded another uh, hundred folks here, and then everyone watching online to uh, go. Uh, visit your blog. You can now put up a paywall, and uh, uh, you know triple <laughs> your salary income. Um, uh, super interesting. Really, really helpful. I want to introduce now um, uh, Susan Lawrence, uh, who's going to offer some initial commentary. Uh, Susan's a good friend, um, and uh, she's a specialist in Asian affairs at the Congressional Research Service, uh, which is part of the Library of Congress that provides uh, the U.S. Congress with authoritative, nonpartisan research and analysis. Uh, she focuses on politics and security issues related to the PRC and Taiwan. And before joining the uh, CRS in 2010, uh, she was, worked mainly as a journalist, including 11 years in Beijing as a staff reporter for major U.S. publications. Uh, she holds a BA magnum cum laude from Harvard College and an MA in East Asian Studies uh, from Harvard University. I think I first came across your work, I believe it's 1994 China Journal article on village elections. Why am I? Yes. Is that right? Only wow. 25 years ago. It shows you that I, I uh, uh, read people who write the cool stuff, and luckily <laughs> I get a chance to follow up. And I would bet that village elections in China don't quite look like uh, what Nathan's talked about today, but you never know. But anyway, uh, thank you for joining us today. Look forward to your uh, uh, initial reactions uh, to uh, Nathan's presentation. Well, thank you so much for having me here. Thank you, sure. Scott, for the invitation to CSIS. 
Um, that was a fascinating presentation, Nathan. Um, that was, I appreciated actually how comprehensive that was, that you walked us through all the issues and all the candidates and um, did that in an incredibly efficient way. Um, because we're in Washington, there are a couple of issues that, that are on the minds of a lot of people here that we'd love to have you perhaps talk a bit more about. So one is the whole Hong Kong factor. You talked about this a bit. Um, but I'm wondering how big a factor it's been in the turnaround in President Tsai's fortunes. Uh, how has Hong Kong played, how's it affected the thinking of the DPP, but also the KMT in terms of their strategy? Has it reinforced each of the, the DPP approach, or has it, is there any chance that it might make the DPP reconsider um, the approach towards uh, independence and other sorts of issues like that. And then um, in terms of the, the Hong Kong issue, I guess I'd also be interested in broadly how it's being reported in Taiwan. Is there a consensus on how to read what's happening in Hong Kong? Um, we hear a lot about the blue media in Hong Kong. So how are the blue media, I'm not Hong Kong, in Taiwan. How are the blue media in Taiwan covering what's happening? I, I'm not very uh, across that and I'd, I'd be curious to hear more. And then I guess there's also this, the question of how much people in Taiwan see Hong Kong as a test of the US commitment to the region or to Taiwan. I mean, are people in Taiwan watching how the US handles Hong Kong for signals for how it might respond to Taiwan? Or do people in Taiwan see things as being in very different buckets? So that's one set of questions. I don't know, do we want to do a few different topics and get Nathan to respond or? or, or do the whole, whole. Do the whole thing, okay, yeah. all right. So then, uh, so that's the, the Hong Kong-Taiwan dynamic and the US-Hong Kong-Taiwan dynamic. So another dynamic that you talked a bit about was US actions, the idea that US policy may also have contributed to President Tsai's surge uh, over the last few months. Uh, in fact, you said that you, that you think that now the DPP may be claiming that US-Taiwan relations are the best in 50 years. That's the first time I've heard that formulation and it got me thinking, so I guess that gets us back to 1969, um, which I guess 71 was when the US backed China getting a seat in the UN and the expulsion of Taiwan. So I guess 69 is what, that's, we're talking before the, before you, before the UN. Uh, before the, the, the incredibly consequential UN decision. Is that, I, I, I guess I'm pressing you on that 50 years <laughs> statement and how committed you are to that 50 years, the idea that, <laughs> no. that this is the best relationship Sorry. in 50 years. So said decades. Okay. Um, so on the US, US actions towards Taiwan, so we've seen some of the things you mentioned, um, so we've seen the transit visits, we've had two sets of recent sets of transit visits, right? So we've had, most recently in July, we had Denver, we had uh, New York City and Denver, right. and then um, earlier uh, we had another transit visit. I have my list of transit visits here. Um, so earlier in the year, in March, we had Honolulu. Right. So we've had two transits in the course of just a few months. 
Uh, we've also had these major arms sales, the $8 billion sale, uh, well, the proposed $8 billion sale, the notification of a proposed $8 billion sale of the F-16 uh, CD Block 70s <laughs> to Taiwan. Uh, and then prior to that, the, the notification of the tanks um, seemed to be also significant and the Stinger missiles and so on. But so those, those are some of the, the data points, I guess. And I'm curious about how important those have been in the Taiwan presidential election campaign. Is there anybody in Taiwan saying, why is the US doing these things now? Is the US trying to support her? Because I know that in previous elections, we've had that a bit, right? I mean, I know that there was controversy about the US allowing Ma ying to do a transit visit in the run up to the presidential election back in 20, where are we, 2012. <laughs> uh, and some questioning of whether that was appropriate for the US to be, be a factor in the election. So I'd be curious whether there's what the discussion is now. Also, we were talking a little bit um, behind the scenes about, behind the scenes in the, in, the, in the room back there, about this little bit of pushback you were hearing in Taiwan to, Taiwan arm, uh, to the US arms sales to Taiwan. Um, and I guess we've also got that in Terry Gore's quote about the US selling Taiwan old systems. You were saying that you were surprised that that was the first time that you'd heard Taiwan arms sales, US Taiwan arms sales being questioned in Taiwan. And I guess if you could just tell us a little bit more about that issue, I for one would be interested in hearing a bit more about that. And then this question of whether Taiwan will actually have, be willing to, to, to pay um, the price tag for some of these military systems. Um, we had a, a period, uh, some in an earlier era, back in the Chun Shui-bian era, where the US was willing to sell arms to Taiwan, but Taiwan didn't have the budget to pay for it, uh, or the legislators weren't willing to approve the budget to pay for it. So I'm just, again, on these most recent arms sales, what's the situation there? But, but particularly that question of whether you were mentioning that there are people in Taiwan beginning to question a little bit um, US arms sales, and, and it's been such a, I think, standard part of US policy here that the Taiwan Relations Act says that the US will sell arms of defensive nature to Taiwan, and there hasn't been, there isn't much awareness here of a controversy, a debate in Taiwan about whether that's such a good idea. So I'd be curious if you can tell us a bit more about what you were saying on that point. Uh, other US actions, which seem from here to be sort of significant, but I wonder if they've had traction there. Um, uh, it would include things like the US Indo-Pacific strategy, the defense, Department of Defense's Indo-Pacific strategy that came out in June, which for the first time referred to Taiwan as a country. Uh, and that seemed like a, a significant move from the US side. Um, also on those, Transit visits, we had President Tsai um, having her first visit to a US federal facility to the Johnson Space Center, and then we had in New York City that she uh, had a walk in Central Park and she gave a talk at Columbia and it seemed to be sort of higher profile. So again, how much has that mattered in Taiwan? Um, and then we had the, right, the meetings between the National Security Advisors, which you did mention as significant. 
so yes, a bit more about sort of how US policy, I guess, is being read in Taiwan would be helpful. Uh, and the other piece of this is, of course, domestically within the Taiwan system. You mentioned that you're an expert in candidate selection systems. I was, I have to confess, not much of an expert in candidate selection systems before this Taiwan presidential campaign got underway. And I was a little surprised to discover that first it seemed that the parties didn't actually have a set system in place, that it was a bit ad hoc how they were going to choose their candidates. So there wasn't a, an established primary system or anything else. It seemed to be sort of up for some, some um, debate about how they should go ahead and select their candidates. Um, I was in Taiwan. I'm trying to think when it was. Um, it would have been uh, the end of last year, I guess, uh, and meeting with folks in Taiwan and, and hearing, to my surprise, that the KMT hadn't decided yet. And this is a year before the election. They hadn't decided how they were going to pick their candidates. Um, and in the end, I guess they went with this idea of a poll where you call up people and you say, well, you can tell us a little bit more about how that poll is conducted. But basically, it's a public opinion poll that chooses the candidate. And that, to an American, is a surprising way to choose a presidential candidate. So can you tell us a little bit more about that process, how you choose to put the candidate, and whether there's a debate around um, that process and any discussion of, of having a more established process for, for choosing a candidate? Um, in the case of Terry Guo, with the big news yesterday, I guess, was that he announced that he's resigning from the KMT. So what does that do? Does that change anything? Um, I know that you mentioned that he and Ko Wenzhou were pulling votes more from, would pull votes more from the DPP than from the KMT, but I'd still be curious whether his formally leaving the KMT means anything, particularly in, in terms of his cross-strait positions. I mean, is it less apostasy if, uh, apostasy, um, uh, if he says, some of the things he said if he's not a member of the KMT. Um, so what's, what's the significance of that? Uh, and I guess um, you also mentioned briefly, and I think maybe I've read on, on frozen garlic, this idea that another factor that may have helped President Tsai is the gay marriage issue. Uh, and it sort of seems like that was particularly important for younger voters. Uh, and you said that when gay marriage happened, that younger voters turned their support to her very quickly, that there was suddenly a surge of support for her among younger voters, and older voters have taken a little longer to, for their support to kick in. So that was interesting to me, but it made me wonder a bit about whether that's single-issue progressivism, or is there the idea that, that voters who were taken by the gay marriage outcome well, does that also extend to environmentalism, social justice, international relations, um, women's rights, equal pay, those sorts of issues? Are they all over one, or is gay marriage somehow kind of sui generis? So maybe I'll stop there for now. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a terrific list. I just want to um, thank you, Susan, for those comments and questions. Uh, Hong Kong, uh, US policy and actions, um, candidate selection, gay marriage. Uh, four big topics, 
Uh, if you want to pick the highlights from the top of them just to, to get going, I do want to, we want to give the, the audience a chance to, to weigh in on, with comments and questions as well. Um, and so why don't I turn things back over to you and give you a chance just to have some initial reactions. Um, yeah, I'll, it'll be about three minutes to get through this <laughs> list. Uh, on Hong Kong, I think that the, well, the most important thing is that Hong Kong has uh, not necessarily changed anybody's opinion. Um, but it's reframed the, the, the political discourse. Uh, the KMT wants to talk about win-win economic policies in which Taiwan and China cooperate and everybody gets rich. It's a lot harder to make that argument when Hong Kong is in the middle of turmoil. Hong Kong is the quintessential win-win case uh, and Hong Kong apparently doesn't think it's working out very well. So that, that makes it a lot harder to make that kind of argument. Uh, and it also focuses attention on the demands that China makes and that China is making demands on Hong Kong and then uh, by extension on Taiwan. Uh, I don't think that uh, either party is really reevaluating its own positions. Uh, the, the KMT response to this has been stop paying attention to Hong Kong. The, the Thai government is blackmailing you by talking about Hong Kong and saying you have, to, you have to vote for her or else you'll become like Hong Kong and that's ridiculous. Taiwan is the ROC, we have a sovereignty and a military and, and we're, we're not going to ever have one country, two systems. Don't pay any attention to that. Um, which works for some voters but not for all voters. And it's, it's a, it's a, harder, it's a hard uh, thing to tell people don't pay attention to Hong Kong when Hong Kong is clearly a big news story and things are happening in Hong Kong that are very uh, spectacular and, and attention grabbing. Um, on American policy, uh, I'm not at all committed to the 50 years. I should have just said, it's the best relationship in decades. Uh, and uh, that's how they normally talk about it in a long time, since uh, at least through the democ democratic era in Taiwan and probably through a, a bit of the authoritarian era. But uh, 69 actually, maybe you can make a case for that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not committed to 50 years. Actually, in my head, I was thinking 40 years. I made a math error. Uh, uh, pushback on, um, so there has been some pushback in Taiwan on arms sales uh, and accusations that the, the United States is getting a little bit involved in the, in the election. And a lot of those things that, uh, one of the reasons that Terry Guo made those comments about uh, and kind of embarrassing the, the American uh, delegation that came is he was not directly accusing them, but kind of indirectly accusing them of supporting the Thai government. Uh, and uh, so there, there is some pushback in thinking that the relationship maybe is becoming a little partisan. And there, uh, and it, 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 there's blame to be assessed uh, or credit on, on the Americans who have 
upgraded relationships with Taiwan, uh, and that's redounded to the current government. Uh, I don't think the Americans are necessarily trying to support Tsai, but, but upgrading of relationships with, with the current government helps the incumbents. Um, but also the assumption for as long as I can remember in Taiwan, the assumption among mainstream politicians from every political stripe has been that Taiwan should have as close a relationship as possible with the United States. Um, and we're starting to see people on not necessarily the mainstream KMT, but some of the fringes of the KMT question that assumption uh, and suggest that Taiwan should find a more neutral position between China and the United States or uh, questioning the, the American uh, sincerity, uh, the, the commitment, um, maybe saying uh, Taiwan's hopeless. In the long run, we probably need to shift towards, towards China. It, I wouldn't say this is a partisan question or a partisan assumption in Taiwan yet. I would say that the mainstream thought leaders in the KMT still assume that Taiwan should have as close a relationship as possible with, with, Taiwan, uh, with the United States. But um, there is some small shift that, uh, that worries me. Uh, and it's something I will keep an eye on it, as, as things develop in future years. Um, so nominations, uh, Taiwan generally nominates by telephone polls. Uh, there's a long history of, of trying different nomination systems. By the way, the American nomination system is very unique. Very few, very few countries around the world hold a separate election day in which the state gets involved and runs your, your intra, your inter -party, your, sorry, your intra party nominations. Uh, most, in most countries, nominations are something that parties do internally and the state just doesn't get involved. Uh, there, we've been trying in Taiwan for well over two decades to come up with a good nomination system and it's always tweaked and there are always problems uh, polls started to be used widely in the early 2000s. Uh, uh, so for, uh, for legislative elections and other elections. Uh, Tsai was nominated in 2012 in a contested polling primary in which they called up. She won by 1%. Uh, this is the best mechanism we have so far of balancing the extreme partisans views with the general public uh, in the effort to nominate somebody who is acceptable and can actually win the election, is acceptable to the broader electorate. But it still does privilege the, uh, the people who the, the fundamentalists, party loyalists like. Uh, and there is continued debate about whether this is an appropriate system. Uh, the rules, both parties have always wanted to keep the rules as open as possible in order to preserve as much flexibility as possible. And so one of the things about this year's presidential election that's very unusual is how late we are in uh, determining the, the, make, the lineup of candidates. Uh, the DPP nominated in June, the KMT nominated in late July, and the third candidate 
still isn't for sure. And there are still a couple of other candidates who might get in or not. Um, you know, four years ago, Tsai Ing-wen was nominated in December of the year before, 14 months before the election. Uh, in 2012, I think both sides had their candidates set by May or uh, a lot earlier in the calendar. And so the nomination system this year uh, hasn't worked very smoothly. It's been controversial on both sides. And I'm sure it's something we will, that, that both sides will debate uh, in the next round and in, and in evaluating how this election played out and whether the nomination system was a disaster that helped create somebody's loss. And, and Terry Gore uh, Terry pulling Gore, out of the KMT? I don't think that's a big news story, leaving the KMT. I think it's uh, uh, tomorrow, he, either tomorrow or uh, the 16th. Tomorrow is Middle Autumn Festival, so he might have a Mid-Autumn Festival uprising tomorrow and announce his candidacy. Or I've heard people say that the 16th is a good day for feng shui. Uh, the 17th is his deadline, so he has to announce sometime pretty soon. That'll be a much bigger news story. Um, uh, I don't know about progressivism. I, that was a good question. I don't really have a good answer. I will say on, the, on marriage equality, if you look at the age breakout and support for Tsai Ing-wen, uh, in May and June, so the marriage equality bill was passed in May, 20, May 17th, the May and June numbers among the 20 to 29 year olds skyrocket and then they've been pretty stable since June. Whereas everybody else has slowly caught up to that. So um, the, the young people reacted very differently. Uh, and I think it must be marriage equality because that's what happened. And then Hong Kong started in about May. And I think everybody else has been refocused by, by Hong Kong. Terrific, terrific. Uh, excellent comments, fantastic questions good uh, summary of uh, some key points. Why don't we collect several comments or questions from the audience, and then again, we'll go back to you, and maybe I'll throw one or two on as, as well. So we'll go to the third row here, this gentleman. Just uh, uh, wait for the mic. If you would identify yourself uh, and your institution, and if you could keep your questions relatively brief, that'd be great. Hi, I'm Dave Keegan, a retired State Department teaching Taiwan and China at SAIS. Um I know this is going a little bit down into the weeds, but both the DPP and the KMT at this point seem to have somewhat fractured parties, Han Guoyu being out in one end, and Tsai having to go against some of her deep green supporters to win the nomination. With that in mind, uh, we haven't heard from either party uh, who their vice presidential candidate is, and this seems a little, it, it's late for, to figure that out, but does that have any impact on tying the parties back together. Is that what they're thinking about? Another question. Yes, uh, Tina Chong with the Voice of America's Chinese branch. My question is, uh, you talked about uh, uh, Hanguo, uh, you know, huge r rallies and a huge crowds coming out. Um, can we tell, can you tell if the crowd is organic, you know, the genuine supporters, or uh, are there any, you know, like uh, artificial or, uh, you know, like man-made? Uh, I, I, I ask this because of, uh, you know, uh, there are uh, so 
some allegations that the, uh, China is behind this, but I don't know how true that is. And also, um, we talked about uh, Terry Guo and uh, Ke Wenzhe and Han Guoyi. Who do you think uh, uh, China favors the most? Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, very nice discussions. There may be a change in some of your calculus. I'm curious. Uh, uh, there is a, there's a theory in aerospace on horror's horror that if you're in a problem where you have a big deal, you just get more and more people involved with it. The discussions around Taiwan are including more and more discussions on the world of Chinese-speaking peoples relating to the provinces and Hong Kong and all. And there was something beyond the, the scope of whether it's just mainland and Taiwan. I'm wondering if there's an impact there somewhere, that, uh, that, that, that the capability of the uh, uh, financial or economic assimilations and the amount of trade going on between, that when you start talking about all of the Chinese peoples, and I take this from the Turks in the, in the Istan republics, where they want to broad this thing out so that more and more people suddenly become engaged to get more participants, more, more stakeholders. And then the other side of the coin is, in Taiwan, we have all of this insurgence of new equipment and, and really good high-technology equipment, but they don't have enough people to have soldiers. They can't recruit. They can't build the military. And the military, you know, the Chinese mainland's military is one-fourth of, of the cost of a, of a, of a small uh, Taiwanese military. And if you get it to the standard of American equipment, it's one-fiftieth of what the cost would be. So there's going to be billions of dollars required to build a first-class military, and you have to have young recruits to do this. And I'm not sure those recruits are there. How do they encourage it would be my question. What are you seeing in the population? Hi, my name is Miranda Labash, and I'm with the Department of Defense. I think I heard an earlier comment, you dismissed the ability of uh, China to influence elections in Taiwan, but uh, maybe I've misinterpreted that, but if, if we suspend that assumption um, and, and instead assume that Taiwan, uh, China will attempt to influence Taiwan elections, they can, that they can and they will, um, the earlier question of the most favorable outcome, in which ways would you expect them to influence the election? Um, yeah, uh, people often ask me, well, they say, I want to talk about Taiwan politics. What, what is Xi Jinping thinking? And I, I say, I have no idea what, what Xi Jinping is thinking. I study Taiwan politics. Uh, let's start with, uh, let's do this in order. So the vice presidential choice uh, it's very, very late to be making these choices. Everything's late this year. Uh, the, the obvious choices for the DPP and KMT uh, are William Lai and, and Eric Zhu. Uh, and those would probably be the, the ones to, to knit the parties back together as much as possible. But uh, this, isn't, this hasn't... This hasn't been a real big topic of discussion so far. Uh, some speculation, not, not, not a central topic anyway. Um, 
on the crowds, on the hand crowds being organic or mobilized. Uh, so when we talk about mobilized crowds in Taiwan, we usually talk about buses. And there are lots of buses to these rallies. Uh, that doesn't mean that those are insincere people. A lot of the people in those buses are organizing their own bus and coming up from the south to a, a rally in the north or from the north to a rally in the south. Uh, Han's supporters are very enthusiastic. Uh, and there's, there's, no, there's no hint that those people are not Taiwanese citizens and Taiwanese voters who, who sincerely want Han Guoyu to be the president. Uh, so they might be organized by their local politicians to get into a bus and come as a group. But that doesn't mean that they are in any way uh, illegitimate participants in those rallies. Um, who does China favor? I would assume China favors somebody who supports one China. Um, I, they haven't really made any clear pronunciation yet as to how much they're willing to accept Terry Kuo or not. Um, but I assume that Hanguoyu is acceptable to them. Um, Chinese-speaking peoples. So Taiwan always has a, a, a task of defining who is a legitimate person in this political process. And over the last 20 years, I think that Taiwan has come to a consensus that the people who legitimately have a say in Taiwanese politics are the 23 million formal citizens of Taiwan, not anybody who speaks Chinese, uh, not uh, the citizens of the PRC or citizens of Singapore who speak Chinese or citizens of Indonesia who speak Chinese or citizens of the United States who speak Chinese, unless those people hold an ROC passport. Um, and uh, so, you know, because Taiwan is small compared to that, 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 that potential uh, Chinese-speaking population, it's, it's almost a defensive mechanism to say these are the legitimate participants in Taiwan political discourse and everybody else is an outsider in some way. Um, military recruitment is a topic of discussion, not a top-line topic, but it's one of the low-level grumbling topics. And there is some discussion about whether Taiwan needs to go back to a universal conscription model. Uh, so they changed about 10 years ago and transitioned to a voluntary force. Uh, and there, there is a question of, is, are there enough recruits? Are they getting enough training? Uh, and uh, is the reserve system being compromised in some way? So this is a topic that's on the, on the political agenda. Uh, how will China try to influence the election? I assume they will try uh, with social media farms and uh, sending various signals that probably would backfire. Uh, I, I don't, I, I really don't have much insight on how China will try to influence elections. They tried in the 2012 election, they tried to buy off a village in southern Taiwan uh, by offering to buy all the milkfish in the, in the, it was an aquaculture town. And so they offered to buy all the milkfish from this one town. Uh, and I looked at the 
the election results and compared them to previous years and the towns around them and no effect at all. So they'll try other things uh, and see if they can come up with something that works better. Um, let me ask you about uh, sort of a, a broader theme to, to what you've been talking about. You, you mentioned the tectonic plates of Taiwanese politics uh, being uh, the relationship vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China. And it seems to me you just described candidates and a set of issues that don't fall naturally between deep green at one end and deep blue at the other with a single spectrum. That these are people with complicated backgrounds um, that uh, are talking about a whole variety of different issues. And I'm, I just, I'm wondering uh, to what extent these tectonic plates are res constraining, restricting um, the full development of, of Taiwanese democracy along a whole complex set of issues um, where you then have different tectonic plates or climate change, climate and weathers that would affect political trajectories. Um, you know, lots of the world now is being affected by populism, uh, views about globalization, also uh, responsiveness about progressivism uh, uh, that Susan mentioned. Uh, is all of that inevitably always going to take, uh, you know, a backseat to the relationship across the straits? Or can you, and if it does, do you think that's a constraint on the maturation of this political system? Sorry to ask that. Yeah, well, existence is always going to be the fundamental question of Taiwan. Uh, you have to exist before you can be progressive, right? Um, and so there are all these questions. Taiwan has to figure out how to pick up the garbage and keep the lights on. But so, so we have all those, those questions. But because the, the relationship with China is so overriding and so powerful, these questions tend to get filtered through the spectrum of the, the China cleavage. So for example, um, economic development is a classic case of this happening. Uh, everybody ex agrees that we need uh, better economic development, we need more, we need more uh, foreign investment, whatever. Uh, but when the, the, the KMT talks about that, they say, well, we should obviously tap into this, mar this enormous market next door where we have a language advantage and we have cultural advantages and we have other, other advantages. Uh, of course we should do that. Whereas the DPP says, hey, not so fast. Uh, we don't want to concentrate too much in this. We should probably diversify and go into South Asia and Southeast Asia and maintain our ties with the United States. And, and the question of how to do economic development inevitably gets filtered through the China question. Uh, and you see that with wind power and nuclear power, which have nothing to do with national identity. But it turns out that all the nuclear, the pro-nuclear people in Taiwan now are, uh, are, are on the KMT side of the, the debate. Uh, because it, in, in 2002, that was the test of power. Uh, what did it continue building the nuclear power plant? 
uh, and for reasons of, of power and Taiwan's fu grand future, it got filtered into this, this question of nuclear power. Uh, and this happens again and again and again. Um, and Taiwan is never going to be a normal country democracy until the, the question with relations with China is somehow normalized. Um, you know, Wan Lin's said that in talking about democracy and democratization, kind of as an aside in his books, said, oh, but of course you need to settle, you need to settle the question first of what is the nation? Well, Taiwan hasn't settled that, and it can't uh, in the current context. And so everything is going to be, in some way or another, shaped and constrained by this grand ex ex existential question. Makes sense, makes sense. Susan, let me turn last to you for a final word. You work for the Congressional Research Service. You have to, you would have to write a report to uh, members of Congress about Taiwan and the upcoming elections based on what you've heard today. What do you think the take home message is uh, that, that you need to convey? And um, I'm struck by these points about the fact that the process is unfolding so late and that we have candidates who maybe haven't had a lot of vetting so far, um, that maybe are getting, getting their vetting only now. And so there may be, we may see some, we don't really know what we're gonna see in the next coming coming months. Uh, I guess that there's, there's fluidity in this situation. Terrific, terrific. Well, that means that we all ought to be paying close attention for the next few months. And it means we ought to be uh, following uh, Nathan and his work uh, in addition to looking at the media in Taiwan. Uh, please join me in thanking Nathan and Susan for a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you.